You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled The Effects of Esoteric Development. This is Lecture 9, entitled Centaur and Sphinx, Lucifer and Araman, Christ in the Etheric Sphere, given on March 28, 1913. I knew a poet who died several years ago, footnote Hemon Rolle, or Rollet, 1819-1904, and a footnote. One day, in the late 1880s, he confided to me that he was very concerned about the future of humanity. I should emphasize that even though the way he expressed his anxiety was somewhat unconventional, he was undoubtedly painfully earnest about both his anxiety and the direction in which his contrary ideas pointed. Indeed, his anxiety inclined him to be somewhat pessimistic. It was his opinion that the human development would tend more and more toward the head, and that compared to the head, the rest of the human organism would atrophy. He was most serious about this idea, and expressed his fear in a paradox, that is, he believed a time would come when the rational, intellectual nature of the human being would take control to the extent that the head would finally become a huge ball, and that human beings would then roll like balls over the earth's surface. This person's fears were very real. He thought of us as living in the epoch of intellectualism, when the intellectual faculties as expressed in the head are emphasized. He believed that these intellectual powers would progressively increase and that humanity was moving toward an unenviable future. This was a very unconventional way to voice his fears, and in a sense we might say that the anxiety that produced his pessimism was also unusual. In this case, as in so many, however, the intellectual forces of human beings has a tendency to exaggerate and jump to conclusions when some observation is considered. There is ample evidence for this tendency both in ordinary exoteric life and in anthroposophical thinking. We must only look around a little. We find that human experiences and observations over the centuries have always produced a crop of theories and hypotheses. How many have been consigned to oblivion during the course of human evolution? How many have been shown to be worthless? In the anthroposophical and occult domain, we often find that whenever certain facts are communicated from clairvoyant vision by someone, trained in the occult and thus having some clairvoyant powers, theories come along and invent all kinds of notions and plausible theories, which are then expanded and developed. The original observation is often specific and limited, but the ideas and theories built on it encompass a whole universe. This is always a danger, because the intellect tends to exaggerate beyond all proportion. We find this tendency in an almost reasonable form in the well-known book by Sinnott, titled Esoteric Buddhism. Footnote, 
Alfred Percy Sinnott, 1840-1921, journalist, chief editor of title The Pioneer, a prominent English newspaper in Allahabad, India. He became a friend of H.P. Blavatsky, who arranged for him to correspond with Mahatma K.H., one of her masters, on the basis of which he wrote The Occult World, 1881, and Esoteric Buddhism, 1883. He also became Vice President of the International Theosophical Society, 1895-1907. End of footnote. This book is based on a number of genuine esoteric facts, which are central to the work and refer to the middle period of the Earth's development. These facts, however, form the basis for a system of rounds and races that revolve and follow each other in cycles, always in a similar way. These conjectures are all theories elaborated from a small amount of genuine data found in the book, that is, factual data. This was also true of the poet I referred to. Deep within, this poet had a kind of subconscious, instinctive imagination that told him something of the truth an ounce of truth, as it were, multiplied a hundredfold. We are often confronted with such things, but where is the truth? The truth is that in the present age or earthly cycle, the human head is going through a kind of evolution. And in the future, the formation of the head and its whole structure will change further. Looking ahead to the earth's distant future, we must imagine that, for example, the structure of the human forehead nose and jaws will go through important changes, whereas the rest of the earthly human organism will in a sense regress. Nevertheless, during the whole earth epoch, the relationship between the head, which is certainly developing, and the rest of the body will of course never become an autonomous rolling ball. The head's development will proceed very little in this direction. On the other hand, during earlier eras of earth evolution, before the middle of the Atlantean epoch, the rest of the human organism was able to change and did continue to transform. Aside from the head, the human organism has changed relatively little, I repeat relatively little, since the middle of the Atlantean epoch. Before the Atlantean epoch, however, the rest of the human organism changed considerably. Thus you may conclude, this time correctly, since it is simply an observation put into words, that as we return farther into the Atlantean and Lemurian epochs, human beings appear increasingly different even to themselves. During the ancient Lemurian epoch, human beings looked very different than they do today. The way we might have seen ourselves as human beings in the latter part of the Lemurian epoch is revealed somewhat as we gradually, clairvoyantly receive the impression leading to the paradise imagination, as I described it. I explained that this paradise imagination corresponds to a complete description of the human being's physical body as paradise itself. Thereafter, human beings became dissociated, as it were. They became divided beings, and thus our present bodily nature appears dispersed, as I described. And yet a powerful leap forward was made during the time we look back to clairvoyantly and see the Paradise legend unfold before us. It may also be clairvoyantly observed that 
through this sudden leap forward, this extension of the human entity, as it were, was compressed relatively quickly into the state that became the beginning of subsequent human development. Nevertheless, right after the time related to the paradise imagination, the human form was very different from that of modern human beings. Essentially, the whole natural environment was very different from what it is today. In previous lectures, I said that we could attain the paradise imagination if we could suddenly become clairvoyant for a moment during sleep, looking back at our physical and etheric bodies and allowing ourselves to be stimulated by them in order to experience the paradise imagination through them. In general, however, it must be acknowledged that if we want to realize the paradise imagination, we must have already made great progress in esoteric development. We must have won many victories over ourselves, gone through many trials that transform our personal interests into the interests of humanity and the world. Then, when we go from deepest to a less deep sleep, and there are degrees of sleep, and in this higher sleep become clairvoyant, what manifested later in earth's development is revealed to us. That is, the human condition during the Lemurian epoch after the great leap forward. In this way it is possible to see this primordial period of the earth by separating the eye and astral body from the physical and etheric bodies and looking back at them. In other words, nature's expedient, sleep, comes to our aid because we are outside of the physical body during the night. And we may use this expedient and regulate our training so that, as though awakening from sleep without re-entering the physical body, awakening in another state of consciousness, we are thus able to see the physical body. From this you can see that the vision just related provides the only real possibility of knowing the human form during the primeval past. A time will come in the far distant future when we will become aware of how extraordinary those people were in the 19th and 20th centuries, people who believed that through scientific research and the study of the surrounding animal kingdom they could discover the nature of human ancestry. A true development of human knowledge shows that we may actually come to understand human origin on earth and our original form only through clairvoyant observation. We will gain insight into what human beings were like during the Lemurian epoch, for example, only through clairvoyance or retrospective vision stimulated by the impressions that come from our own physical and etheric bodies. When this is accepted, it will eventually be seen and confirmed that the human form never had any relationship to the animal forms that surround human beings in the 19th and 20th centuries. The clairvoyant consciousness described reveals that the human form as it existed during the Lemurian epoch differed from all modern animal forms. And even the terms we have used, bull, lion, and so on, are used only for comparison. Footnote. See Rudolf Steiner's 1911 lecture cycle titled Wonders of the World, Ordeals of the Soul, Revelations of the Spirit. Especially Lecture 9 where he expands on the subject of human evolution in relation to the bull, eagle, lion, and human being, all represented in the enigmatic image of the Sphinx. End of footnote.
future humanity will realize the absurdity of how people of the 19th and 20th centuries traced their origin back to simian ancestry. During the Lemurian epoch, apes did not exist in their later earthly form, but evolved at a much later period from decadent and degenerate human forms. Retrospective clairvoyant vision finds that no trace of animals similar to today's apes existed until around the middle of the Atlantean epoch. The farther back we go in human evolution by using clairvoyant vision of our self during nighttime sleep, the more we perceive that our form or ancient structure has been preserved to some extent. Thus when we (coughs) survey ourselves we become aware of the physical body enclosed in an infinitely more delicate etheric body. We appear to ourselves in a form more akin to a vivid dream picture than to the form of flesh and blood that we know today. We must become familiar with the idea that when the self and the astral body are outside the human being, they can scarcely see the head. It appears quite nebulous. It is not completely effaced, but it seems quite vague and indefinite. On the other hand, the rest of the organism seems more distinct. It is also nebulous, but gives the impression that the human being is not a being of flesh and blood, but is endowed with a more powerful organization. As odd as it seems, it's true that when we perceive ourselves clairvoyantly in sleep, we sometimes see our physical and etheric bodies in a form reminiscent of the centaur. Footnote, centaur is the Greek mythological half-man, half-horse, descended from Ixion, king of the Lapiths. They were savage followers of Dionysus, though some, like Chiron, were teachers of human beings. End of footnote. In its upper part, the centaur's human aspect with the human face is shadowy. The other part, which has no relation to any existing animal form, but is reminiscent of animal forms, in a certain sense gives the impression of power, and thus to the spiritual eye, E-Y-E, this part seems stronger, more solid, than the present human form of flesh and blood. I have already touched on these questions in an earlier lecture course. Footnote, Rudolf Steiner title Occult History, Historical Personalities and Events in the Light of Spiritual Science. End of footnote. Still, you must realize that all these imaginations, except for the paradise imagination, are fleeting and can be portrayed from different perspectives. I could just as well portray a somewhat different aspect, and you would see that this corresponds to another point in the course of development. Then we would arrive at the form of the Sphinx. Footnote. Elsewhere, Steiner says, quote, If you recall the all-embracing significance of the figure of the Sphinx, intended to represent the great riddle of human evolution, then you actually have what a clairvoyant culture which was aware inwardly of the truth about humanity, placed before this humanity. The features that stand out separately in the Sphinx are interwoven inwardly in human nature. For clairvoyant sight, the human form has a very strange appearance. If one allows such a Sphinx, made up of a lion form and a bull form, together with the wings of a bird, to work upon the clairvoyant vision, and if one completes it, by adding the human phantom or human archetype that underlies it, 
If one weaves these elements together, the human form, as we have it today, comes into being before us. Thus clairvoyant consciousness cannot view a sphinx, which initially doesn't resemble a human being at all, without saying, You are myself. Close quote. And that is from uh, titled Wonders of the World, Ordeals of the Soul, Revelations of the Spirit. End of footnote. The successive stages in human development are shown from various viewpoints and aspects. Mythological images or so-called mythological symbols are far more accurate and truthful than the fantastic intellectual theories of modern scholarship. Thus, during the night, the human figure assumes a very characteristic form. And another thing now becomes clear. When we clairvoyantly view the lower part of the centaur resembling an animal being, what we discover makes a definite impression on us. I said yesterday that such impressions or inner experiences are really the vital essential element. The images are important, but the inner experiences are even more so. We receive a certain impression, and later we realize that what urges us during the day toward purely personal interests, what implants strictly personal interests in the soul, originates from what is viewed during the night as the animal aspect of our form. During the day we are unaware of this, but it lives as forces that flow together in us, dragging us down and tempting us to give in to personal interests. As we develop this impression farther, we come to recognize who Lucifer really is in relation to our evolution. As we clairvoyantly look farther back to the time corresponding to the paradise imagination, the structure that only later recalls our animal nature becomes more beautiful. Furthermore, when we go back to the paradise epoch, when the animal nature of the human being appears as if detached from the human being, as if multiplied into bull, lion, and eagle, we may say that these mythological forms, designated by these ancient names, are also in a sense symbols of beauty for us. The forms become more and more beautiful. And if we go back even farther to the time I spoke of yesterday, when I describe the impression of the sacrifice, we come to the epoch when Lucifer's true form appears to us in sublime beauty, the form that Lucifer wanted to preserve during the evolution from the old moon to earth. You know from the account in my title Outline of Esoteric Science that the astral body was given to the human being during old moon and that we carry in our astral body something that play an important role during the old moon. We described it as I-being, as egoism. This I-being had to be implanted in human beings during old moon. Thus, since we received our astral body on the old moon, the I has its seat in the astral body. And so, having preserved the moon nature, Lucifer brought I-being to earth as the inner soul character of beauty. Lucifer is thus the spirit of beauty, on the one hand, and on the other the spirit of selfhood. And what we may call Lucifer's error is simply that he brought something to the earth that, if I may use the expression, was appropriate on the old moon, that is, 
the power to permeate the self with I-being. In this way, human beings have the possibility, as has often been said, of becoming in themselves, in their inner being, self-contained, free beings, which they nearly could have become if Lucifer had not transplanted selfhood from old moon to earth. Through inner experience we come to know Lucifer as the night spirit, and the fact that we inwardly experience the company of Lucifer during the night we owe to that transformation which our eye and astral body go through in occult development. If one takes a superficial view, this idea may be distasteful at first, but if one reflects more deeply, it may be soon realized that it makes more sense to recognize Lucifer better to know when we are in Lucifer's presence than to believe he is not present. Lucifer's forces are active and unseen within us, and they are active in us during the day. The worst is not the presence of Lucifer, since we gradually come to recognize this spirit as the bearer of freedom. The worst is that we do not recognize Lucifer. Yet after we caught sight of Lucifer's temptation of human beings during the Lemurian Epoch, we were no longer allowed to see this spirit. This original temptation, however, was followed by innumerable lesser temptations. And so the divine spiritual being assigned to human progress had to cast a veil over our nocturnal vision. This meant losing everything that human beings would have otherwise seen during sleep. Sleep cloaks in darkness the world that human beings live in between falling asleep and the moment of awakening. But as soon as the veil is lifted, we would certainly find Lucifer at our side. If we were strong enough, this would be harmless. But since in terms of earthly development we were initially not strong enough, a veil had to be drawn over the time spent in sleep at night. Since the original temptation that resulted in the possibility of human freedom, the other temptations that arise from the direct vision of Lucifer between falling asleep and awakening cannot affect human beings. Now there is another aspect. We cannot see Lucifer during the day unless we see his companion Araman during the day. Excuse me, let me see that, read that again. We cannot, now there is another aspect. We cannot see Lucifer during the night unless we see his companion Araman during the day. When we reach that point in the esoteric development of the eye and the astral body, then our waking consciousness, which allows us to perceive external objects, is no longer that of an ordinary human being we realize that we now approach things differently than we used to do before developing the eye and the astral body. We come to view certain impressions that we accepted in an abstract way before as the activities of aramonic beings. We learn to recognize this desire, not as desire arising from within, which is luciferic, but as desire from without, desire stimulated in the human being from outside, and attracting us to surrounding objects and beings in such a way that we follow this at attraction from personal motives. In other words, everything from outside that tempts us to indulgence we may recognize as the sign of Araman. We learn to recognize Araman's signature as everything external that inspires fear in us.
the polarities are enjoyment and fear. Around us are the so-called material world and the so-called spiritual world. Both worlds appear to waking consciousness as maya or illusion. The sense world appears as maya because people do not realize that Araman lurks and excites desires in the soul whenever external objects and entities stimulate the pleasures of the senses. The permeation of all matter with spirit, which materialists deny, causes fear. And when the materialists perceive that fear is welling up from within, from the astral domain, they deaden themselves by inventing materialistic theories. The words of the poet are profoundly true. Quote, simple folk never notice the devil or Araman, even when he has them by the throat. Close quote. Footnote. Mephistopheles' words in part one of Goethe's Faust. End of footnote. Why do materialists get together? To conjure the devil. This is literally true, but people are unaware of it. Today, whenever materialistic monists meet to proclaim their neatly packaged theories that only matter exists, Araman has them by the throat. There is no better opportunity for studying the devil today than by attending the materialist or monist gatherings. Thus, when human beings develop the astral body and eye to a certain level, Araman is with them every step of the way. When we begin to see Araman, we are able to protect ourselves, since we become aware that Araman lurks behind allurements of sensual pleasure and emotions of fear. Again, because of humanity's immaturity, Araman had to remain hidden. That is, a veil was drawn over the nature of this being. This was done somewhat differently than with Lucifer. In the case of Araman, for human beings, the outer world was plunged in Maya. They were deluded into believing that instead of Araman lurking everywhere, only matter existed. Whenever human beings dream of matter, in reality, Araman is there. The atomic theory of physics is grossly misleading. Material atoms are simply the forces of Araman. Humanity as a whole is developing and evolving, and this evolution is such that in the future human beings will continue to develop intellectual powers. Consequently, the human head will assume a different external form. In a sense, this development toward intellectualism first began at the birth of modern natural science in approximately the 16th century. If emphasis is increasingly placed on intellectual development, it will have a profound influence on the human eye and astral body. During the 16th century, ancient clairvoyant traditions survived contemporarily with the beginning of modern science. People knew then that a time would come when, through the higher development of the eye and astral body, human beings would be able to see Araman more clearly. But then intellectual development was at first strongly opposed to the perception of the spiritual, which darkened. Thus, by placing the figure of Mephistopheles, who was none other than Araman, beside Faust, it became clear in the 16th century that Araman will become increasingly dangerous to future human development. Humanity must recognize that Mephistopheles will increasingly become a seducer, as it were, of the human race. <clears throat> Previously people were aware of this because they preserved a memory of the ancient spiritual systems, but humanity as a whole has forgotten it 
In the future, however, people will always be aware that we are accompanied in our waking life by Araman Mephistopheles. Nevertheless, we must not forget, on the other hand, that we are moving toward a future when, every time we awaken, we will get the impression, at first like a fleeting dream, but after that more and more clearly, that our nighttime companion was Lucifer. We can therefore see that through the occult development of the eye and astral body we may anticipate what will happen to humanity in the future. We can intuit something of the comradeship between Araman and Lucifer. In accordance with a definite evolutionary law, Lucifer first contacted humanity during the Lemurian Epoch. Later, as a result of the Luciferic influence, the influence of Araman came about. In the future, this situation will be reversed. The Aramanic influence will be strong at first, and then the Luciferic influence will associate with it. The Aramanic influence will act primarily during the waking state, and the Luciferic mainly during sleep, or in conscious states related to sleep, since clairvoyant states of consciousness will develop more and more in the human soul. Thus, in the beginning, human beings needed protection against Araman, because he was destined to enter our outer sense life while we are awake. Such protections were given throughout human evolution, many, many centuries before the corresponding danger became apparent. Today, however, humanity as a whole is not yet fully conscious of Araman Mephistopheles even though the protective impulse manifested at the beginning of our era with Christ's physical incarnation into the course of earthly development. Christ's incarnation in the physical body was a precautionary measure to ensure the protection of human beings through receiving the Christ impulse against the necessary influence that would come from Araman Mephistopheles. When the Luciferic influence appears later, an influence connected to another consciousness, Human beings will be armed against it, thanks to Christ's presence in the etheric. We have often spoken of this future manifestation of Christ in his etheric body, and we have said that it is drawing near. Just as Christ once appeared in the physical body and his impulse spread far and wide after that time, so from the twentieth century on Christ will be seen in an etheric form, first by a few and then by an ever-increasing number. Thus we can see how human development progresses because of a kind of equilibrium or a balancing of the two impulses. The story of the temptation, that is Christ's rejection of Lucifer and Araman, as described in various ways by the evangelists, I have spoken of this before, footnote, see the Rudolf Steiner lecture cycles titled The Gospel of St. Matthew and the Fifth Gospel, and a footnote indicates that through the Christ impulse or mystery of Golgotha, human beings will be able to find the right path of development in the future. Within a part of the true development of the human eye and astral body, when transformed, we can receive the impression of the parts played by Araman, Lucifer and Christ in human evolution. Indeed, right development of the eye and astral body will lead to this knowledge of the three impulses that determine human evolution. In order to develop properly, we must overcome the egoism of the astral body in favor of the general interests of humanity and the cosmos. 
If we bring personal interest and aspirations into areas of clairvoyant observation, where only human and universal interests should claim our attention, it acts like poison. We do not come to the truth in that way, but become the victim of false imaginations that are simply the reflections of our personal interest and aspirations. A clairvoyant person, for example, who is still identified with personal interests and aspirations, sometimes reacts as follows. I received a letter recently in which someone expressed the wish to communicate something I should know. This person said that Christ had been reincarnated in a physical body and that his address was somewhere in West London. Also, that Mary had been reincarnated in a physical body and her address was that of his niece in such and such a street. Paul, too, had been reincarnated and was his brother-in-law, and his address was also given. Thus those mentioned in the New Testament had all reincarnated among this individual's relatives, and their various addresses were given. I can show the letter to anyone who is interested. It is a document as strange as it may seem, and it shows the effects of introducing personal interests into the higher spheres, where only human and universal interests should prevail. We must clearly understand that when someone makes a mistake in matters of abstract intellectual knowledge, such an error is basically something quite easily controlled, something that can be cleared up relatively quickly, through hum- though, although human knowledge does have the terrible tendency indicated in the last lecture, footnote, that is excessive self-concern, which leads to the failure to pass the guardian of the threshold, end of footnote. Everyone is completely free in relation to these impulses in human knowledge because, as expressed in daily waking life, they are diluted. That is, we don't need to be dazzled by the follies and stupidities of the human intellect. And those who, nevertheless, allow themselves to be blinded by these absurdities may be cured in a fairly short time. On the other hand, let's suppose clairvoyant observation leads to false imaginations, such as I described. These false imaginations infect the soul to the extent that they stifle healthy common sense and intelligence. In this way, they do far greater harm than merely intellectual absurdities. The correct approach is to try to permeate everything acquired in the area of esotericism with common sense guidelines. If imaginations are simply communicated without the attempt to explain them as we have tried to do in these lectures, and indeed some occultists do communicate false imaginations without explaining them, then we suppress precisely the critical faculty in others that should quickly reject false imaginations. Whereas those who commit intellectual absurdities invite criticism, it is possible to that people who spread false imaginations rob those who believe them of the power to critically examine them, that is, They are blinded to the need for rejecting such imaginations. Thus we see that as soon as knowledge steps over the limits fixed in the natural course of development, as soon as human beings rise to clairvoyant knowledge, it is absolutely necessary that their development be directed to human and universal interests. This has always been known in true esotericism. And to assert otherwise that a healthy entry into the spiritual worlds or a sound development of the eye and astral body may be possible without extending human interests to selflessly encompass the cosmos and humanity, to argue the opposite of what has been stated here, 
could spring only from a frivolous attitude toward esotericism. We must therefore not lose sight of the importance of these things when speaking of the transformations that occur in the eye and astral body in higher spiritual development. The end of Lecture 9